The Soundtrack Show with David W. Collins is about to begin. John Williams' score for Star Wars is, according to the American Film Institute, the most influential film score of all time. But Star Wars and its musical genesis didn't happen overnight. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and on this episode, we are launching The Soundtrack Show into hyperspace by taking a very detailed look at Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope from 1977, a film written and directed by George Lucas with music by John Williams. Full disclosure here. I've been working on the Star Wars franchise in some form or another, be it movies, TV, video games, events or red carpets, or even theme parks and toys, for almost 20 years. As a sound designer, a mixer, sometimes a composer, a voice director, or a host. It will probably come as no surprise to you then that I hold Star Wars in very high regard, both creatively and professionally. But, in spite of all that, I must stress that it is not just a personal bias or rose-tinted glasses when I say the following. Star Wars, the original 1977 film, is nothing short of a modern miracle, and it is one of the most important pieces of popular art to emerge from the 20th century, due in no small part to its incredible, strongly intended, and direct orchestral score. Today, we're going to talk about why this movie is so important and frame this talk around the origins of Star Wars and its musical score. After all, the American Film Institute lists John Williams' score for Star Wars as the, quote, most influential film score of all time, end quote. Of all time. Why? What makes it so special? And why on Earth, or any other planet in any other galaxy, did I just claim that this movie is not just an important miracle, but in a lot of ways, the important miracle? Okay, well, maybe I'm a little biased, but we're going to spend the next several episodes talking about why. Here are a few reasons why I say this, just to kick us off, and then we'll go into finer detail. One, timing. In past episodes, I've made a point of discussing where movies seem to land in popular culture by giving a quick overview of what was happening in the world at the time. With Star Wars, this will prove to be critical. 2. Ingenuity Like the films of early Hollywood, Star Wars and its music were groundbreaking for their time. They represent a combination of the best of the past, mixed with a vision of filmmaking's future, all wrapped in a galaxy the likes of which the world had never seen before. It is every discipline working at its very hardest to produce the best of what they were even capable of, the best of what any movie could offer. 
taking the medium of film itself to greater heights than it even knew it could achieve. And three, its universal appeal. Story, character, and emotion appeal to a universal audience, and those aspects of the film are delivered to us mostly by music. The emotional triumph that we feel as an audience when the credits roll is not just in the script or in the actor's performances. It is, in fact, the music that is our lifeline, our peek into the emotional state of our characters. On unfamiliar planets and strange locations in a galaxy far, far away, the music is our oxygen. Let's start at the very beginning. Before there was Star Wars, there was young George Lucas. George Walton Lucas Jr. was born on Sunday, May 14, 1944, Mother's Day, to parents George and Dorothy Lucas. He was the third child born of four, was the only boy, and was raised in the small Northern California town of Modesto, California. Modesto, by the way, is the Spanish word for modest, and is quite appropriate for this town, which George himself describes as a slice of Americana, a Norman Rockwell painting, more like growing up in the Midwest than in California. Modesto is, um, it's California, but it really is the Midwest. You know, so I grew up as Midwestern California. You know, Modesto was really Norman Rockwell, Boys Life magazine, raking leaves on Saturday afternoons and having little bonfires. And, you know, it was just very classic Americana. His father, George Sr., was a self-made businessman. He ran a stationery store in Modesto called L.M. Morris. He was very conservative and ran a strict household. He had strong hopes that his only son, George Jr., would someday take over the stationery business. George, however, showed little interest. As a kid, he was obsessed with comic books, TV serials like Flash Gordon, and reruns of old 1930s movies and movie serials that were shown on local TV stations. The media that he consumed in those years would seemingly leave a permanent mark on his creative aesthetic. Later, as he moved into junior high and high school, he became bored with academics, and he was a very average student. George's honeymoon with school didn't last long. By the time he hit junior high school, he was thoroughly bored by academics and daydreamed his way through much of the school day. His grades suffered as a result. I was not a bad student. I was an average student. You know, I was a C, sometimes a C minus student. I was definitely an underachiever. George became obsessed with cars and rock and roll. Like a lot of kids in the late 50s and early 60s, he'd go cruising with his friends in cars, in this case down 10th Street in Modesto, listening to local DJs play Elvis Presley or the Beach Boys, and he would try to meet girls. He had an interest in photography, but his real passion was cars. During the first years on the Walnut Ranch, George became a serious music fan. He became, in fact, passionate about rock and roll. And his attachment to rock and roll was superseded only by a fanatical interest in cars. By the time he was old enough to get his driver's license, cars were his full-blown obsession. You were a gearhead. What was your first car? Uh, my very first car was a Fiat, a very small um, version of a Fiat. George Sr. bought George a Fiat Bianchina 
with a two-cylinder engine that George said, quote, ran like a sewing machine motor, and that was, quote, practically a motor scooter, end quote. George at that point had become quite the mechanic, and he modified the car for speed, even installing his own custom racing belt and roll bar for safety. Eventually, he started working in local pit crews and entering himself as an amateur racer in local races. With his hair slicked with grease, his grades being nothing to write home about, and his time spent either at the races or cruising through town at all hours of the night, George Lucas seemed to be a young man without direction. All he knew was that he didn't want to work in the stationary business and live the small-town life. Then, at the age of 18, just days before his high school graduation, George came very, very close to death. As he was returning home, he began turning into his parents' property, a walnut orchard just outside the main part of town. He didn't hear or see the Chevy Impala coming in the other direction as he made his left turn, and his little Fiat was struck violently, sending it flipping over multiple times on itself, and eventually wrapping itself almost completely around a walnut tree in a mangled wreck. Miraculously, George survived. The reason? The safety belt that he had installed himself failed as the car was flipping out of control. He was thrown from the car just a split second before it hit the tree and landed on the ground so hard that his chest was crushed. He passed out, and he began to bleed internally. A few days before graduating from high school, George was coming home in his Fiat when he was hit by another car. The Fiat rolled about seven or eight times and then wrapped itself around a walnut tree. When they arrived on the scene, I was pronounced dead, and they took me to the hospital to have a doctor do it. And they said, this guy's not dead. And, uh, you know, because my lungs had been crushed, so I wasn't breathing. And I guess my heartbeat was extremely weak, and they couldn't find it. For my parents, it was devastating because it was right at the end of their road, and my mother heard it. And she, you know, then she went down to see what had happened, and here it was him. It was her son, and um, it was very you know, very traumatic. And, uh, and most of the kids at school thought I died because it was on the front page of the newspaper. You know, my car was this little mangled hulk that was driven down the main street where I cruised and where all my friends cruised. Suddenly they saw my car on the back of it. I mean, it couldn't even be towed. It just had to be, it was just a, a pile of rubble. Everybody thought I'd been killed. So um, it was like almost starting a new life. With a new appreciation for life, George started to find his direction. He enrolled in Modesto Junior College and began to study anthropology. He really began to apply himself. And suddenly he was studying what he wanted to study, not what the state of California said you had to study, like in high school. With a continued interest in art and photography, he began to make plans to attend an art school in Pasadena. Well, this was a no-go for George Sr., who absolutely forbid it. Art school, George Sr. thought, was a one-way ticket to unemployment. It was not a respectable or practical field. By chance, George's good childhood friend, John Plummer, suggested that George apply to USC's film school. That's University of Southern California. Not even knowing what film school was exactly, he began to formulate a plan. If he went to USC's film school, he would learn more about photography, could probably take any art classes he wanted to on the side, but more importantly, 
he was betting that his father wouldn't know exactly what film school was any more than George did and would be just thrilled to see him attend a respectable private school. The major would hardly matter. Well, George Jr. was right. His father agreed to pay young Lucas's tuition so long as he got good grades and applied himself. George attended film school at USC, and he took to it like he had never taken to anything before. In those days, the image of the young, hot film student did not yet exist. Hollywood was a closed shop. No one went to film school with the expectation of making Hollywood movies or even working in a studio. If you were successful, you would end up making industrial or educational films. If you weren't, you could end up taking tickets at the movies. What did you become aware of immediately? Within one semester, I was completely hooked. I mean, this film was my life. Suddenly cars were not important to me. Nothing was important to me except film. Because I got in there and I realized I knew what I was doing. It was like I was at home. And it's, a, it's the most wonderful feeling in the world. The best feeling in the world is to be able to discover yourself, discover what it is you're good at and that you feel comfortable with and that you enjoy doing. And no matter what it is, if you stay there, you're going to be happy. So you were at USC, you're in film school, and this is heaven. This yeah. is even better than this is even better than cruising in Modesto. Oh yeah, this is better than anything. I basically just completely uh, was living at 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's all I thought about. That's all I did. Um, you know, I'd be working all day, all night. You know, living on chocolate bars and coffee, and you know, it was a great life. Within his first semester, George knew that this was for him. His student films were standouts immediately. It was clear that George Lucas was special. When, in his early years, he was given a simple animation project to learn how to use an animation camera, that is, a camera that you could pan up and down, left and right, etc., over a static image, George turned in a movie called Look at Life, which featured incredibly sophisticated editing, all done to energetic percussion that he lifted from a movie called Black Orpheus. Every movie he made was pure cinema usually with some sort of great soundtrack, either sound effects or music, or both. He became obsessed with the films of Jean-Luc Godard, Akira Kurosawa, Arthur Lipset, and Sergei Eisenstein. And over the next four years, he would turn out genius student film after genius student film. Among his impressed film school friends were Walter Murch, the sound designer eventually on Apocalypse Now!, THX 1138, and American Graffiti, Charlie Lippincott, who eventually marketed the film Star Wars for Lucasfilm, Donald Glutt, who wrote the novelization for The Empire Strikes Back, Howard Kazanjian, who ended up producing Return of the Jedi, Hal Barwood, Randall Kleiser, who directed Grease, Matthew Robbins, Batteries Not Included, Willard Hike, who co-wrote American Graffiti, and John Milius, who wrote Apocalypse Now and directed Conan the Barbarian. So later at USC, this time as a graduate student, Lucas would make the ultimate student film. Borrowing equipment that was supplied to USC by the military, George was a student teacher for military students at the time who were being trained on how to make films for the government, George Lucas embarked on a movie called THX 1138-4EB, a dystopian short film about a man trying to escape his surroundings. Now, this is where I want to pause, actually, and call attention to something. Starting with his student films, we will start to see a pattern of storytelling and a style 
that will lead us to Star Wars and its use of sound and music. Starting with the theme of escape, of longing for something more. George Lucas at that time was a typical real-life example of an I want song from a musical or a Disney movie. As if George looked at Modesto and sang to himself, there must be more than this provincial life. THX 1138 4EB is, while light on plot, it's heavy on style, but is the story of a man trying to escape a world that exists in a police state. People work and live in a state of constant medication. Emotions are frowned on. Physical contact of any loving or sexual nature is a crime. Like his student short, Freiheit, before this, the main character, THX 1138 4EB, he doesn't have a name, he's just a number, must escape to find his freedom, to find life, to find out who he is, just like the character Kurt eventually would in American Graffiti, or just like Luke Skywalker from Star Wars, trying to get off the moisture farm in Tatooine. But more on that later. After film school, George met Francis Ford Coppola, and eventually the two were like brothers. Both were young and idealistic in a town where all directors and people in the film industry were much older, and it was kind of a locked game. And they shared a passion for making films outside of that old Hollywood system. So it's important at this point to get an idea of just how much the old Hollywood studio system had changed by the late 60s and early 70s. Movies had been struggling to remain relevant and profitable ever since television debuted in the 1950s, and the Supreme Court had broken the monopoly of the studios, removing their ability to block book their movies in their studio-owned theater chains. For a multitude of reasons, giant corporations and investors had all but taken over the big studios by the late 60s. I'll give you an example. MGM, okay, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Long gone were the days of Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg, those two creatives, of lavish musicals starring Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney and Fred Astaire. Instead, by this point, a man named Kirk Kerkorian bought the struggling studio in 1969 and sold off most of its old assets, including most of the MGM backlot, which, historical though it was, is all houses in the suburban neighborhood of Culver City today, and even old props and costumes, including Dorothy's famous ruby slippers. By the way, as a side note, a great deal of these props and costumes were bought by Carrie Fisher's mother, Debbie Reynolds, in an attempt to save MGM's history. Kerkorian turned MGM into a hotel company, opening the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, and sold the back catalog of MGM to Ted Turner, which is how we have Turner Classic Movies, etc. So you can kind of understand the bleak picture of the, uh, of the film industry by the late 60s. At the same time in 1969, while that was all going on, something else shifted in movies. A young Dennis Hopper starred in and directed a movie called Easy Rider a movie about two Harley-riding hippies who sell drugs and try to find themselves on the road through America. This movie changed everything overnight. It appealed to a youth market, and Hopper shot this low-budget movie on location for about $400,000, and it grossed $60 million, giving it the highest profit margins that studios had ever seen at that point. Suddenly, the industry was wide open for younger directors to come in and follow that same business model. Enter Francis Ford Coppola along with young George Lucas. 
Coppola formed a film company called American Zoetrope, relocated everyone to San Francisco, along with many of Lucas's film school buddies, and negotiated a seven-picture deal with Warner Brothers. The first of them was to be a feature film version of Lucas's student film, THX 1138. Lucas was true to his student film version, and he turned in a bleak, intellectual masterpiece. Totally unique. His craftsmanship on full display. And Warner Brothers and most audiences hated it. They didn't get it. Zoetrope's deal was shuttered, and Lucas parted ways with Zoetrope. And while he was down and out and broke, formed Lucasfilm Limited. This is where we arrive at our first point. Timing. George Lucas was, at that point, even by his own account, a very angry young man. Like a lot in his generation, he detested the war in Vietnam. He distrusted the government, and with good reason, considering that the Washington Post published the Pentagon Papers about the U.S.'s secret involvement in Vietnam since as far back as 1945, unbeknownst to the public until 1971, the same year that THX was released. And Nixon's Watergate scandal and eventual resignation were just around the corner in 1973. Flower power and protests were at their peak. America and the world itself seemed like its own dystopia to many young people at the time. After a handful of student films and his first feature, here is where we see George Lucas make a remarkable pivot in the tone of his movies. They'd always been political and dark. This pivot is incredibly important toward the making of Star Wars. I'm going to read you a little excerpt from George Lucas' A Life, a book by Brian J. Jones. Quote, With a highly unpopular war still splattered across the front pages of the newspapers each day, Lucas shuddered at the idea of taking part in some insidious, cynical trend. I was working on basically negative movies, Apocalypse Now and THX, both very angry, Lucas said later. I realized after THX that people don't care how the country's being ruined. All that movie did was to make people more pessimistic, more depressed, and less willing to get involved in trying to make the world better, he decided. We've got to regenerate optimism. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. George Lucas's next film, American Graffiti, was pure optimism and heart. Now stay with me here because this leads to Star Wars in a major way and paves the road to the greatest film score of all time. American Graffiti is the story of four kids, three of which are autobiographical parts of George's personality, who go cruising for one night in 1962 to a soundtrack of all 50s and early 60s pop tunes. As George puts it, it's about being in a self-imposed cage. You're in a prison cell, but you can't see that the door is open, especially for Richard Dreyfuss's character, Kurt, who spends the entire evening debating whether or not to leave for college the next morning or do the safe thing and stay in town. There are 43 licensed songs in this movie. So much music was planned for the film that when George was pitching this movie around town and holding auditions with actors, he referred to the movie as a musical. But not in the traditional sense. 
when I went into the audition with George, it was just a five minute meeting and I, I said, now look, I, I know I, I, I don't want to, uh, to, to do damage to my, my hopes here because I'd like to be considered for the movie, but I can't sing. He said, well, what difference does that make? And I said, well, my agent told me it's a, it's a musical. He said, well, it is, it is a musical. I said, well, I can't sing. He said, it doesn't matter that you can't sing. And that was the end of the interview, this very cryptic sort of conclusion. George Lucas would say something like this again a few years later when describing Star Wars to people. He would call it a silent movie. He didn't call it a musical, but he called it a silent movie. And people have been baffled by what that means, even to this day. People ask me about it all the time. But we can find a hint of what he means in American Graffiti when he referred to that as a musical. What he actually meant was that the whole thing, American Graffiti, was set to music. The music drove the story. It provided the emotional underpinning of each and every scene. He actually wrote the scenes with that music playing in the background. Similarly, with Star Wars, he wanted the music to drive the action and the story. So when George Lucas says it's like a silent movie, what he really means is that it's music-driven. The music tells the story and is, in many ways, even more important than the dialogue. I'm going to say something that we should remember when thinking about movie soundtracks in general and their history. Silent films were never silent. Silent films were never silent. Now, technically, they were without synchronized sound or music on the film. There was no sound contained on the film. But audience members experienced wall-to-wall live music in the movie theater, sometimes by a pianist or organist, and other times by a full symphony orchestra in the big movie theaters in New York or parts of Europe in the teens and 20s. Silent movies were never silent. Even as far back as early films playing in the Nickelodeons or as carnival attractions, music was used to drown out the sound of the film projector. Silent films, especially at their artistic peak, were music-driven, just like American Graffiti and just like George Lucas's next movie, Star Wars. So, back to the story of George. To say that American Graffiti was different than THX, those two films were back-to-back, to say that they were different would be the understatement of the year. Graffiti, unlike THX, was accessible, it was fun, and it was a huge hit. But the films were, in some ways, interestingly enough, about the same thing. They were about freedom having the courage to escape, embarking on adventure, because you just have to, no matter how frightening it is. Now, finally, with the success of Graffiti, the stage is set for George Lucas to realize his vision for Star Wars. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. And now, back to The Soundtrack Show. George Lucas, a young director who was raised on the products of classic Hollywood, He himself was a product of pure Americana. He was comfortable in drawing on the past, but was always looking towards the future. This balance of looking forward while looking back is directly reflected in his art, in Star Wars Episode IV, A New Hope, especially in the music. It is what makes Star Wars such a unique piece of 20th century popular art. It honors the history of film, while simultaneously pushing it into the future. 
1975, Lucas took his Star Wars pitch all around Hollywood. And it was rejected all around Hollywood. Except for at one place, with a man named Alan Ladd Jr., the son of the famous actor Alan Ladd, over at 20th Century Fox. He finally responded to George, and George responded to him. Here's another excerpt from George Lucas, A Life by Brian J. Jones. Quote, For one thing, he and Ladd both spoke the same language. Film. Rather than laying out his photos of astronauts or attempting to describe the plot or mood, Lucas spoke to Ladd about the films they both loved. This sequence is going to be like the Seahawk, he told Ladd excitedly, while other scenes would be reminiscent of Captain Blood or Flash Gordon. I knew exactly what he was saying, said Ladd. And he liked Lucas, too. I knew from spending time with him that he was a dead honest person who knew what he was doing, end quote. Well, there's a reference to two films scored by Eric Wolfgang Korngold, <laughs> Captain Blood and the Seahawk, two swashbuckling films with their own themes with full orchestra and the rich 19th century romantic tradition that was so heavily employed in classic Hollywood films. We're starting to see a little bit of the aesthetic that George Lucas was already playing with before the script was even written. Here's another story of George referencing old-fashioned movie scores when he famously met with Steven Spielberg looking for advice on who to hire as a composer. Spielberg, after Jaws, of course, recommended John Williams. Also from Brian J. Jones's book, quote, While visiting Spielberg on Martha's Vineyard in early spring, where Spielberg was in post-production on Jaws, Lucas mentioned he was on the lookout for a composer who would give him a very sort of Max Steiner-type, old-fashioned, romantic movie score. By the way, sorry, simple sidebar here. I almost, almost did an episode after Korngold all about Max Steiner, but wanted to jump into Star Wars. We will absolutely come back to Max Steiner, who is equally as amazing as Korngold was, and uh, we will talk about him multiple times on this show. But back to the quote. Spielberg immediately recommended John Williams, a 43-year-old Oscar nominee who had scored both Jaws and the Sugarland Express. I've worked with this guy and he's great, Spielberg told him. The introduction was made, and after reading Lucas's script, Williams agreed to compose the score for Star Wars. End quote. Now, here's where we get into territory that a lot of people are familiar with, but it's still important to mention. George got the movie greenlit, he went out and shot Star Wars in both Tunisia and in London at Elstree Studios. He had a terrible time. He felt extremely depressed, was even hospitalized at one point for hypertension. He started his own visual effects company in a non-air-conditioned warehouse in Van Nuys, California, down here in L.A., called Industrial Light and Magic, because there were no visual effects companies that could do what he wanted to do for the money that he had. They had to invent techniques in order to pull off the script. But right now we're going to jump straight into the earliest signs of what would become the musical score for Star Wars. Lucas fired his first editor in England while they were still shooting, and he had his wife, Marsha Lucas, and editor Richard Chu begin to edit at their house back in Mill Valley, Mill Valley, California, the Lucas's house. Editor Paul Hirsch eventually joined when Marsha was called away to go work with Martin Scorsese, and as they cut, they began to add music to the assembled film footage to help the scenes along. And it was Lucas who was choosing the music. 
This following quote is from Jonathan Rinsler's 2007 book, The Making of Star Wars. Quote, Before showing a cut of the film to John Williams, Lucas and Hirsch added to the temp track. The director had designed his film as a silent movie, told primarily through his visuals and music, so great care was taken to obtain the right moods. We use some Stravinsky, the flip side of the Rite of Spring, Hirsch remembers. George said nobody ever uses that side of the record, so we used it for Threepio walking around in the desert. The Jawa music was from the same Stravinsky piece. We used music from Ivanhoe by Rosa for the main title. George was talking about having a majority of the film set to music. George had listened to a lot of records and done a lot of research, and people had given him records, sound designer Ben Burt says. He had picked out some material from Dvorak's New World Symphony for the end sequence of the Great Hall and the awards. We slowly built up temporary music tracks and mixed them in with the film. So we had a temporary version of the film with an essentially complete sound effects track and a patchwork music track that highlighted various moments in the picture. At this point, Johnny Williams was brought in. I started with George just after New Year's, Williams says. I went up to Parkway, which is where the Lucas's house was in Mill Valley, and George showed me the film. What the source music did was convince me that George was right about the idiom of the music in the picture, John Williams says. He didn't want, for example, electronic music. He didn't want futuristic cliché, outer space noises. He felt that since the picture was so highly different in all of its physical orientations with the different creatures, places unseen, sights unseen, and noises unheard, that the music should be on fairly familiar emotional ground. I think what George's temp track did was to prove that the disparity of styles was the right thing for this picture. So I came back to my little room and started working on themes, he adds. I spent the months of January and February, 1977, writing the score. End quote. The earliest music that was temporarily placed in Star Wars was a combination of old Hollywood film scores, a little bit of jazz, and large orchestral pieces from both the 19th and early 20th centuries. These pieces that I'm about to play are pieces of music that actually lived in the cut of the movie at one point in time. These are pieces that John Williams would eventually hear when he sat down to watch a rough cut of the movie for the first time right after New Year's Day in January of 1977. Now remember, Williams was recommended for the job by Spielberg because of his neoclassical score for Jaws. And if Lucas's conversation with Williams was anything like his conversation with Alan Ladd Jr. about movies that Korngold had scored, we get a sense of how the task of scoring Star Wars was framed. Let's start with the main title. According to Paul Hirsch, this main title piece is from a movie called Ivanhoe by composer Miklos Rosa, and it was cut into the main title of Star Wars. Listen to those big interval leaps, the perfect fifths or pillars 
and listen to that brassy fanfare. And if Korngold ever did come up in conversation, I'm sure that the following piece wasn't far from Williams' mind as well. That is, of course, King's Row by Korngold. Now, let's examine music from Tatooine for the Jawas. According to the making of Star Wars, Lucas used the second half of The Rite of Spring by 20th century composer Igor Stravinsky. The Rite of Spring is perhaps one of the most famous ballets ever composed in the 20th century and is infamous for inciting a riot when it premiered in Paris on May 29th 1913. The harmonies were so outlandish, so crazy, that it stirred the audience into an uproar. That is a whole other fascinating story. But let's listen to the beginning of the second half of The Rite of Spring. Now, let's compare that with what eventually ended up in the film. That's remarkable, isn't it? It doesn't take a classically trained musician to hear the similarities between those two pieces. The texture, the tone, the atonality. Uh, it's, it's an incredible, incredible direct influence on, on the Star Wars score. Another part of the Rite of Spring left its mark on Star Wars as well. Listen to the harmony and rhythm in this section early on in the Rite of Spring. Now, let's listen to another famous orchestral piece from the early 20th century by an English composer named Gustav Holst. This piece is called The Planets. 
The section that we're going to look at is a movement called Mars, the Bringer of War. This music, according to Richard Chu, was used in the beginning of the film as the Empire takes over Leia's Corillian Corvette. Let's take a listen. Now, let's listen to William's version. For the throne room sequence, Lucas used the last movement of Antonin Dvorak's Ninth Symphony, or New World Symphony. As they were assembling the movie, this is the track they used. Now, let's compare this with William's piece. The point? Well, John Williams, when looking at Star Wars for the first time, heard what is called a temp score, music that is placed in a film during the editing process in order to discover how scenes work with music, how the pace of the edit is or isn't working, and as a guide for the overall style of the film itself. His job is to take that temp score and synthesize all of the demands of the director and create his own unique original score that also hits all of those points. Never has a traditional film score been in such high relief from the visuals. Never have we needed the emotional context more. 
Never has the combination of sound, music, and visuals been so exciting and new. What audiences were about to experience was film nirvana, the boldest extremes of what the medium had offered to date, in a style that honors its roots, the golden age of Hollywood, ironically made by an outsider, but one raised on the studio system's earliest output. But back to the beginning of 1977, right after Williams saw the rough cut with George, I want to break down the task that was laid before him. He had to take a look at the movie for the first time in early January. The first scoring date was March 5th. With parts preparation, orchestration, and travel, that gave him roughly eight weeks or so to write the score. Eight weeks. He had to take the temp music that George had laid into the, into the film, hit those moments in a way that was satisfactory to the director, in the spirit of the temp, as we heard, but he also had to create his own themes, his own music, his own score, give it its own identity. Here's another quote from George Lucas, A Life. Quote, On March 5, 1977, Lucas settled into a seat in the control booth at Anvil Studios in the little English village of Denham. He was exhausted. Only four days earlier, he'd been at Goldwyn Studios in Los Angeles to spend the day recording James Earl Jones' dialogue for Darth Vader, and now he was at Anvil to oversee a week of recording sessions for John Williams' score. On the other side of the soundproof glass, Williams was, for the first time in his career, conducting the London Symphony Orchestra. As the opening moments of the film were projected overhead onto a 34-foot screen, and the orchestra erupted into Williams' heroic fanfare, Lucas was visibly moved. Quote, to hear Johnny play the music for the first time was a thrill beyond anything I can describe, said Lucas, who knew he had something special in William's score and the immediately recognizable themes he had provided for key characters. A lot of the emotional content is carried through the music as much as through the scenes themselves, Lucas said. End quote. We'll be back next week to dive into William's music itself. We'll break down the major themes and discuss how they're used. We'll talk about how it affects the mood of each scene and look at how the melodies themselves are constructed. When it comes to the score for Star Wars, we're just now preparing for launch. Thank you. Thank you.